From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. I went to work for Chairman Shapiro immediately after Maidan. And I, I remember this vividly because I hadn't gone up to her office yet. The very first question she asked me in an email was, can you please find out what happens to tips and complaints at the agency. That was Steve Cohen, a former enforcement attorney at the Securities and Exchange Commission, explained his first assignment in the wake of the Madoff scandal from then-SEC chair Mary Shapiro. He was eventually tasked to build the agency's first fully electronic and comprehensive system for capturing and processing tips, complaints, and referrals. It's known internally simply as the TCR system. Today, that system receives upwards of 20,000 complaints per year about potential market misconduct, abuse, and fraud. He shares his experience leading the initiative and provides an inside perspective of the challenges the agency faced in responding to the biggest fraud ever known. My returning co-host for this episode is McCombs Business School student, Nathan Graber. Steve, hello. Great to have you on the show. Good morning, Scott. Great to be here. Let me introduce my co-host, Nathan Graber, McCombs Business School student. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Steve, uh, we're really glad to have you here today to lead off our second season. Our professional career intersected for several years at the SEC. It started as a result, I think, because of Bernie Madoff. And I can even remember our first meeting in the chairman's conference room when I was read in for the first time on what it was the SEC was doing. And that's going to be the subject today. Uh, but before we dive in, just like to ask you a couple questions. And the first is, you know, you've been outside of government for a while. I think you left in 2017 to go back to the private sector. How do you like it? Do you miss the SEC? Two different questions, uh, for sure. First of all, Scott, it, it is a pleasure to do this with you. I do remember meeting you, and I, I would be remiss if I didn't uh, take the opportunity to say that I, I very much enjoyed being your colleague and coworker. Uh, we're going to talk about this system, but you were a substantial contributor to it as well. So thanks for having me. Of course, I miss my colleagues at the SEC. I mean, I spent 12 years at the commission and a number of other years in other government positions. I'm very proud of my government service. I think if you talk to anybody who spent substantial time working for the government, most of them say it's, you know, among the best times in their career. And that's certainly the case for me. I miss my colleagues very much. I, I, I certainly miss working at the commission, but, and I, and I miss a little bit my time. I miss the Department of Justice as well. But I'm, I'm pretty happy, believe it or not. I enjoy working outside of government. I enjoy working with clients and for a variety of reasons. I think it's uh, very healthy to have the opportunity to work in both scenarios. So you started your career working as a law clerk for a federal judge and then trial attorney for the Justice Department. After some time uh, in private industry, you returned to public service, as you were just saying, at the SEC. What put you on this path and what have you learned from going back and forth uh, between the private sector and public work? I wanted to work for the government, if not before law school, certainly in law school. I always knew that I wanted to work in government. It was something that I aspired to do. And from people who mentored me while I was in law school, who were former federal prosecutors, I think I got the bug. They, at a minimum, persuaded me that uh, starting in government uh, can be very rewarding, particularly early in your career when you get to do a lot more, quite frankly, maybe a little bit less training and a little bit more doing. 
So I applied to clerkships and the Attorney General Honors Program early on and was fortunate to have the opportunity to enter into the Justice Department that way to kick off my career after my clerkship. To your broader question about kind of going back and forth, you know, there's a misconception about what folks like to, I think, refer to cynically as the revolving door. I think having a career in which attorneys have the opportunity to work in government and outside government is a great thing, quite frankly. I think it's important to have people with knowledge of industry and government, and you need people with strong government backgrounds in industry. Unfortunately, the misconception reflects perhaps the cynicism in our society uh, about a lot of things and not so much the value in people having the opportunity to serve our government, uh, but not necessarily for all of their careers. So I, I find it incredibly valuable and I'm, I'm really fortunate to have had the opportunity to serve in both environments. I, I like your answer, Steve. I mean, I know having worked with you, you're a great public servant and I think that people get a bad rap when they go in and out of government, um, and maybe some people do in nefarious ways, but the vast majority of people that I know like to serve their country and also like to work in the private sector. So shifting gears just a little bit, diving into the main topic, I'm hoping we can start off talking a little bit about Madoff, and in particular, I want to discuss how tips and complaints are handled at the SEC. Uh, this changed quite a bit following Madoff, and we want to understand why. I mean, Madoff was a big event. There certainly were other frauds revealed by the crisis, the tides going out. But I think it was Madoff that really shook the SEC to its core. It was the largest Ponzi scheme, I think, known to date. Do you remember where you were when Madoff, when the Madoff fraud was revealed? Where you were? What was your role at that time? Like, what were your impressions? Perhaps I shouldn't confess this. It might be telling that I don't remember. And that's because... I didn't know who Bernie Madoff was. Uh, maybe it's embarrassing for me to admit at the time. I was a trial attorney at the, at the SEC. So uh, this is back in my litigator days, happily taking depositions and going to court on behalf of the SEC without candidly a deep knowledge of well-known personalities like Bernie Madoff. I certainly remember generally and immediately becoming aware and concerned about the revelation of the Madoff fraud. And of course, it was instantly the most important thing to anyone and everyone at the SEC when it when it was. But it was it was early December, mid December, two thousand eight, and I, I vividly remember the circumstances for sure. Can you describe the fraud at a high level? What was Bernie Madoff doing, and how was he able to fool so many people? Uh, and you know, look, one of the funny things to me about as I reflect on it is that perhaps we'll talk about this. I couldn't have known when this fraud came out that it would have such a direct and substantial impact on my career. I mean, I guess the simplest way I can describe it is to maybe go a bit broader than Scott's description, which is it's the largest Ponzi scheme in history. I think it was valued at something like $65 billion, which is really mind boggling. I remember the first Ponzi scheme case I worked on at the SEC in 2005 was about $100 million. And at the time, that was considered a very large Ponzi scheme. Madoff was one of the most celebrated investment managers of his time, and he earned substantial, steady returns for thousands of institutional and retail investors, or at least that's what they thought from their account statements. And I guess the best way I can explain it is he wasn't, in fact, investing their money in securities or the investing strategies that he told them he was 
undertaking as he promised them, but he simply collected investments and in typical Ponzi scheme fashion, he used the new money from new investors to pay back investors who sought redemptions. It's quite, quite frankly, a bit miraculous that he was able to carry this on for decades, but it was actually a very simple, straightforward, if not incredibly massive Ponzi scheme. Yeah, so to this incredibly massive, simple Ponzi scheme that he maintained for decades, I remember I learned about it from a press release. That's how you often learn about things at the SEC when you work there is when it goes out to the press release, just like the public. And I thought it was a typo. Like, oh, it can't be right. Somebody got billion, one million wrong. It's a really embarrassing mistake. But it was massive. How was he caught? I mean, after all these years, what, what, what finally happened? Well, I mean, quite literally, he was caught when he confessed to his sons in mid-December 2008. I mean, I think it's useful to take us all back to 2008 and think about what was going on at the time. It was the midst of the financial crisis, but he told his sons about this actually, and they turned him into the criminal authorities the next day. I mean, apparently his fraud worked as long as the markets continued to rise and people left their money with him so that redemptions weren't, uh, weren't necessary. And he had enough capital to withstand short-term market corrections. But when the financial crisis hit, nobody had seen anything like that in decades. His clients began large-scale redemptions, as I understand it, to the tune of billions of dollars. And at the point it became apparent to him that he could no longer sustain the scheme, he, he told his sons and uh, they turned him in. So why wasn't he caught earlier on in the process? Uh, what were the SEC's failures uh, leading up to that? First, and maybe I didn't fully answer Scott's question to understand why they didn't catch him, it's maybe useful to spend a minute on how, how he got away with it for so long. Most of his investors were long-term investors. They weren't looking for, here's my money, can you give me something back right away? People certainly had, uh, and certainly he had a lot of elderly investors, had you know, regular money, retirement money coming out in small amounts. But what he did was he used falsified account statements to perpetrate his fraud by reflecting substantial, steady, I think some people would say not particularly gaudy returns. And so people flocked to him with new money regularly. He was also very secretive, which should have made people suspicious, but kind of kept a lot of what he was doing quiet. And he literally took the money and put it in the bank. And so he had hundreds of millions of dollars in the bank that he could use to pay people money when they asked for it. I think a combination of his reputation, the scale of the cash flowing through his scheme, and candidly, some blind luck allowed him to keep this going for decades. And I think that takes you, uh, Nathan, to your question, which is, well, then why didn't the SEC catch him? I mean, it's a complicated and simple question at the same time. And there's a substantial Inspector General report on this very question. But at the end of the day, I think there were a number of opportunities to catch him, unfortunately, including, to the point of this podcast, various uh, tips and complaints, as well as SEC examinations that might have led to a much earlier revelation of the fraud. The inspector general found, as I recall, at a, at a high level, that the SEC did not follow up on certain tips and regarding some examinations and investigations, did not ask the right questions. I think importantly, didn't follow up with independent third-party sources of information, and in some instances lacked the appropriate expertise to follow up on some of Madoff's explanations for his trading. 
And I think that's why the agency in 2009 um, accepted responsibility for not detecting this fraud sooner. Do you think the SEC was appropriately criticized for it? I mean, there were some hearings. It was also the same time that the former chairman, Mary Shapiro, was, you know, joining the commission. Uh, do you think they got undue criticism, appropriate criticism? Uh, how do you think at your time being at the SEC staff felt with the criticism? This was a profoundly difficult time for the agency. And if you'll indulge me for a minute, Scott, I think it's useful to put that month or those months in context. Poor, poor Mary Shapiro, for whom I, I worked, you know, Madoff was revealed after the president nominated her to be chairman, but before she was confirmed. So if you think about it, right, you, you agreed to be the chairman of the SEC in the midst of the financial crisis, understanding how incredibly difficult it was going to be and thinking that what you're really going to confront is some people's uh, concerns or allegations about the failure of Lehman and Bear Stearns, right? Those were the market issues heading into December 2008. And then Madoff is revealed. And I, I might add that in early 2009, the Stanford fraud was also revealed. Uh, Alan Stanford was a, a very large Ponzi scheme at, I don't remember if it Maybe $8 billion pales in comparison to Madoff, right? But itself would have been the largest Ponzi scheme in history, but for Madoff, right? All of these things happen as Mary Shapiro is getting confirmed to be the chairman of the SEC. And this actually defined her early tenure and the work I think that many of us were doing far, you know, in, in some regards, as much as the broader financial crisis, even though these, these things are linked. Chairman Shapiro made the early decision to accept responsibility to some degree and to apologize for what the agency missed. And while I think this is an important point, I would say, Scott, some of the criticisms are fair and some of them are unfair. So I think it is fair that the agency as a whole, I'm not talking about any particular individuals, had opportunities and information available to it that certainly could have allowed the agency to detect and catch Madoff sooner. So let's talk about that. I mean, what did the SEC look like at that time? Can you give us some insight on how the SEC generally found fraud? What was the sources and channels of information being alerted to potential misconduct? What did they do pre-Madoff to find fraud? Yeah, I mean, at some level, the channels are the same as they are today. It ranges from enterprising enforcement attorneys reading the news, following you know corporate information, public filing, but also receiving tips and complaints from third parties from the outside. And then I think the historically the richest source of tips is also probably the examination program, where you know folks go into registered broker dealers and investment advisors and, and sort of look around. These are in some regards related to some of what the inspector general found as, as misses by the agency. I also probably need to add, you know, there is, you know, Harry Markopoulos, the celebrated whistleblower. And I think whistleblowers also kind of fit into this narrative at some level who did come to the agency several times with a fair amount of information. And unfortunately, it seems as if some of what he had to say wasn't at least fully and completely followed up on. Yeah. So let's go to the SEC vernacular for a second. And this acronym that's often used internal to the SEC called TCR. Can you tell us what that is? And also, you mentioned the word whistleblower. We should definitely dive into that a little bit more. 
But what's the difference between a, a TCR and a whistleblower? Sure. Yeah, let me explain that. And then we should probably talk about what TIPS looked like at the time, you know, which is uh, very relevant to all of this. So TIPS complaints and referrals is, is the vernacular that's used. TIPS and complaints are perhaps in some regards related. They're typically coming from third parties who believe they have information about wrongdoing. And the way that information was received at the time was unfortunately pretty rudimentary and certainly the way it was handled. Referrals generally is intended to denote information coming from other government agencies, for example, um, the Justice Department, FINRA, the stock exchanges and the like. These are the primary ways. I think also the Enforcement Division uses referrals in some regards to reference referrals from the examination program where they find allegations of wrongdoing or issues related to wrongdoing and refer that over to the Division of Enforcement. So which of the which of the channels worked best? Was there a particular channel that worked well? I, I think that while it's greatly improved for a variety of reasons, some of which are lessons learned from NADOF, I, I still think the examination program is the highest quality source of information for the enforcement division. I think the coordination of these two programs has substantially improved, but I don't want to suggest that it wasn't good as a general matter before. It's a rich source of information for obvious reasons because the examination program has the ability to go on site into investment advisors and look around, right? They get documents, they, they interview people, and they're in a position to find problems. You, you had asked before, and I didn't answer where whistleblowers fit into all of this. I think of whistleblowers as a, as a tip, right? Tipsters, whistleblowers are coming forward and saying, hey, you know, I think there's wrongdoing somewhere. And I, I think that whistleblowers have always been taken seriously by, by the staff, but I think the program has changed dramatically since Madoff and the advent of the Dodd-Frank program that followed it. So what happened to the process post-Madoff? How did the process change and what was your role in changing it? Night and day. So the very so I went to work for Chairman Shapiro immediately after Madoff, I think end of January, early February 2009. And I I remember this vividly because I hadn't gone up to her office yet. The very first question she asked me in an email was, "Can you please find out what happens to tips and complaints?" at the agency. Literally a very simple question like that is what led to the, the TCR system that Scott and I uh, had the pleasure to work on together. So I performed a, a bit of a mini investigation and I looked around the agency to try to figure out what did happen to TIPS. It turned out that there were, I think, no fewer than 75 discrete email boxes around the agency that allowed some form of tipper complaint to come in. So in other words, different divisions and offices had their own form of complaint system. Trading and markets, right, had a place where if you had a market complaint, you could go to them. Enforcement had one or more. Enforcement had a pretty decent, albeit it was technologically rudimentary, they had a pretty decent system where people could send emails with complaints. And they were very carefully reviewed and looked at. The exam program had them. The chairman's office had them. Commissioner's offices had them. Anyway, the point is there was no system to take these complaints and put them in one place or have them reviewed in any consistent and coherent way. And in fact, if somebody wanted to find out whether, for example, Madoff had made a complaint in previous years, really the only way to do that would be in an Outlook query. They would go into the system and query the Outlook for Madoff. So there was no way to record not only what complaints were coming in around the agency, 
but what if any action occurred as a result of those complaints? So what was your role? I mean, like, what did the chairman ask you to do? In the wake of Madoff, it was pretty apparent that that, that wasn't going to cut it. And I think kind of synthesizing, Scott, this question and some of your earlier questions, it was apparent to the chairman. And I, I also want to add, there were significant questions at Congress at this time about whether the SEC should even exist in the wake of Madoff and the financial crisis, right? So there were existential questions going on. The tips and complaint system was one of the key action items as part of a coordinated plan to demonstrate to the public and to Congress that the agency can learn from its mistakes and improve how it does business. While I do think championing the, the real hard work by the professionals at the agency. So the, the idea was we can't have information coming in all over the agency in disparate ways. So we need to create, using modern technology, a single system for all such tips and complaints to either come into the agency or get funneled from all of these discrete places so that the enforcement division uh, and the examination program can have one-stop shopping, if you will, for all complaints. And also learning um, perhaps from the lessons of, of Madoff and Stanford, a place that we can go and look and find effectively an audit trail to see how the agency's staff takes action on these tips and complaints. That was the principle behind the tips and complaint system. So, Steve, you were you were saying that it was an existential crisis for the SEC and some in Congress, and I'd forgotten about this, queried whether the SEC should even exist. So was Congress sympathetic? Did they provide extra money, appropriations to build the system? What was it like to uh, get it launched? Fair to say that in 2009, Congress was not empathetic toward the SEC. I know this is a bit off point and I won't belabor it, but um, my recollection is that Chairman Shapiro testified dozens of times about Madoff. And I think she, she took an awful lot of heat. And to her credit, I think, not only, you know, sort of reflected on, on some of the misses, but also I think defended, I think, the professional staff. I don't recall that there was specific funding appropriated for purposes of this, but the tips and complaint system was used more broadly uh, in Chairman Shapiro and the agency's budget requests for additional funding, which I do think ultimately did occur. In other words, I think the budget for the agency did increase in the 2009 to 2011 time period. And this was one of the things that was being used to urge Congress to appropriate more money, this kind of technology. I wonder if you can give us some context to how the TCR system works. So you'd said that there were dozens and dozens of different ways tips could come in. What did the TCR system do to change that? How did it involve staff, workflow? I mean, what at a high level, uh, what was the technology change? One of the fun things about the project, Scott, that you may recall is that Chairman Shapiro and I decided early on, I think, to use this as a broader exercise to bring the divisions and offices across the agency together around this kind of really useful and critical information. So the workflow piece that you're referring to, right, what will this technology look like? The steering committee we put together that you served on was also intended to be an effort to cause, if not force, the divisions to come together around 
policy questions about how to use this information and how we can coordinate with this information, not just to action tips and complaints for enforcement purposes, but for policy purposes as well. So the way the system was intended to work, and I think in fact does work, although all IT projects, as you're probably aware, end up being more complicated than originally anticipated. The idea was that we would create a state-of-the-art IT system through which third parties and internal constituencies could enter information about tips, complaints, and referrals in an organized and consistent way, while also creating workflow so that it was apparent to anybody who used the system how that information was used, also with an eye toward allowing internal reporting so that the agency could better understand what kinds of tips and complaints it was getting, not only about particular market participants, but equally important about particular kinds of market activity. So let me interrupt you there for a second. I want to talk about assignment of TCRs, like who processes them and does them. And I remember you gave me the thankless job of writing the policies and procedures for the system. I didn't realize how thankless it was until after you assigned it and we did it. But I went to a Chicago regional office, had a discussion with a bunch of the TCR folks there. And one thing that I heard that I thought was, it was new to me at the time was they complained that if they uncovered a tip or a complaint and they wanted to work it, if they put it in a system and somebody in New York saw it, the New York office might say, hey, I'm going to take that one and they'd lose it. And then I go to Atlanta and say, well, yeah, well, all of our good tips go to Chicago. And so you had all these regional offices saying, hey, I get all the good cases taken away from me when I find something that's not fair. And so they would hold on to the tips and they wouldn't put it in the system. Is, is my recollection correct? Was that an issue? And did the TCR system help in that collaboration? It, at some level, it was an issue, Scott. And thank you, by the way, for taking on that thankless job. I, I, I appreciate it and still appreciate it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I, I talked about the 75 mailboxes across the agency. I didn't talk about all the other pockets of information that, that maybe never got revealed. Somebody could have called one of the regional offices in 2007, and a person could have answered the phone. All of these offices had their own phone lines too, by the way, and some of them had their own internal tracking and recording systems for tips that never left that office. Somebody could have a yellow sticky on their computer, right, with a tip on it, and there was no obligation to input that information to any particular or coordinated system. So, yeah, I think I would say that competitive spirit at some level is a positive thing. I think you want people to want good tips and to want to investigate. Having said that, too much competition maybe internally isn't a good thing. And maybe we're getting at a bit of inside baseball here. But in addition to the technology system, as you note, Scott, policies and procedures were created to handle at a high level in the agency assignment of information across divisions, but within the division of enforcement, meaning Chicago, LA, Atlanta, et cetera, the division of enforcement and the office of, of compliance inspection and examinations created their own policies to make sure that, that there was fair allocation of tips and complaints. So can you walk us through how an allegation of wrongdoing gets uh, put into an actionable item? So how many tips and complaints come in and how does it become an action that somebody follows through with? And importantly, how do you disposition it? At the front end, the system was designed to create more structured information so that when people came and complained, 
it was hopefully clear what they were complaining about. Although, of course, there's always the opportunity for someone to just write what it is that concerns them. The enforcement division actions, allegations of wrongdoing in the first instance. I think that, that, that makes good sense. And they have a pretty sophisticated office of market intelligence that has you know, a few dozen people in it whose day-to-day job is to review these allegations of wrongdoing, these tips, complaints, and referrals, and figure out how to triage and action them. The volume is, is actually staggering for an agency of this size. My understanding today is that they, they get tens of thousands, maybe 20 or more thousand complaints a year. I think what we found in 2009 was closer to 10,000. So I think it's probably doubled since the tips and complaint system has gone into place. And then, of course, they get formal whistleblower complaints under the Dodd-Frank program, which is a, a very formal form of tip or complaint. And the Office of Market Intelligence reviews these allegations and triages them in a sense based on urgency and subject matter. So these are professionals who literally for a living review complaints to decide, does this need to be handled quickly? Does it need to be handled at all? Or does this really not allege something that is a violation of the federal securities laws? Maybe we should refer this to another government agency, or maybe and this does happen, maybe this is really just something that can be closed and doesn't need to be handled at all. So how do you know when to ignore or close out a TCR? How do you make a determination that it's not the next Madoff scandal? This is a great question, and I think it's important to pause on for a minute, because I think this was one of the significant issues arising out of Madoff. The allegation that was very personal to the staff was the miss, right? You didn't go far enough. You didn't ask enough questions. You didn't dig deep enough. And if you did, you would have stopped Madoff. That was the premise. And that criticism of the agency, in my view, affected morale and the way that attorneys within the Division of Enforcement did business. It candidly scared people away from closing tips for fear that they would miss the next Madoff. And while I think there may be a visceral reaction by the investing community that that's a good thing, we sure don't want people to close things down and miss a Ponzi scheme. It had a profound impact in the immediate aftermath of Madoff because, quite frankly, it caused the staff, I think, to continue to investigate or to look into almost every allegation out of fear that you would have missed a Madoff. Having said that, I think a combination of strong leadership and I think support of the professional staff and hard work and good work, quite frankly, by the Office of Market Intelligence allowed the division to work through those issues to a point where I think they can make those decisions. I think the shorter, more direct answer to your question, Nathan, is it's professional judgment. Professionals who see right dozens and dozens and dozens of complaints every day understand by looking at it whether, given the agency's limited resources, a particular complaint requires following up. And I just want to add one more thing, which is there's a, there's a pretty substantial, today, there's a pretty substantial supervisory chain within the policies to ensure that no one person is making the determination to follow up on, or more importantly, to not follow up on a tip or complaint. So this this makes me wonder, Steve, when when a when a tip comes in, 
Right. An enforcement attorney is going to think of it in terms of like its legal implications and what sort of frauds, what sort of uh, laws were violated or rules. But when when somebody makes a complaint, they don't understand the system. They just think they were harmed. And so they they try to describe what it is they think that was inappropriate or what the misconduct was. And since fraudsters tend to prey on the least sophisticated I mean, describe, I mean, are these the hardest tips to look at? Your your mother, who's 85, you know, is trying to say her, her retirement income's gone and she goes to this electronic system and tries to communicate amongst one out of 10,000 TCRs that uh, she needs help. Like, how does the system address that? No, that's a great question, Scott. I mean, this is one of the challenges I think the Office of Market Intelligence has. And to the agency's credit, I think that is why it puts a fair amount of resources into this important function. First of all, if, if, if grandma provides contact information and there is at least sufficient indicia that there's potential wrongdoing, you know, the division does have the option to, to contact you know, these, these kinds of folks. At the same time, you know, people don't know what they don't know. So if, if grandma simply submits a, a tip that says, I'm concerned that my neighbor is committing fraud, right? Or I lost money. It's going to be very hard for the agency with its limited resources to follow up on that tip. So I, I think it would be unfair for me to leave your listeners with the impression that every tip is followed up on equally or that there isn't a chance that something can fall through the cracks if it's not framed right. But I would want to leave people with the comfort that because you have professional staff who do this every day, I think it is a skill, quite frankly, to detect um, what might be a potential fraud um, in the words that people convey. And I quite frankly think that the agency has become quite good at it. So does the TCR do anything to try to tease out information in a way that's more actionable? So when somebody goes to the system and uh, is the user interface designed in a way to uh, help make uh, a complaint actionable, and what 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 are the features that make a good complaint when somebody does write in and somebody has an allegation they want to make? Yeah, I mean the system has some objective features that give complainants the opportunity to, in a sense, raise the profile of their complaint. There are categories, for example, that people can select, and there are certain types of wrongdoing that the agency is always going to pay attention to first. So, for example loss of money, loss of investment, misappropriation, those sorts of things, things where there may be an ongoing fraud, the agency is always going to focus on those very quickly. Whereas certain types of wrongdoing that are historic and maybe corporate that can be resolved over time might get looked at quickly, but with a slightly less urgency. So there are features in the system to do that. Early on, as you may recall, Scott, we spent a fair amount of time exploring the possibility of using computerized algorithms to help raise the profile of tips and complaints. And although I've been out of the game for a while, so I don't know if today they've decided to go that path, we were persuaded, we, the people who were designing the system, were persuaded that humans are probably better at this under the circumstances than computers. So I actually, and I have come to agree with that, humans review each one and decide, professionals decide the level of priority of the complaints as they come in. And we don't leave to chance or to a computer algorithm how important a tip or complaint might be. 
So true or false, the most important field of the TCR complaint is all of the indicators and buttons you click to describe it or the text box with your narrative disclosure. That's actually not a true or false question, but you can make it one. I hate to say what I'm about to say, Scott, because it's what we, we worked so hard to avoid by creating all of these terrific fields that would create such terrific structured data for your former office in economic risk analysis. But I think it's the text box. That's not how the system was designed. The system was designed to create objective structured fields that would allow sophisticated analysis. But at the end of the day, for the reason you mentioned, which is that ordinary citizens are interacting with this system and trying to describe what they think is wrong, how they convey that in the unstructured box is probably one of the most, if not the most important field at the end of the day. I remember the former head of the market intelligence group, Vince Martinez, coming to the meetings and just vociferously arguing for the text box as being the most important thing and me being an economist saying we need all this metadata to categorize stuff. And I think I also came around towards the end of the day after years of working with that office that when somebody types in what happened to them in a narrative disclosure and the more they type and the more they describe, that that information at the end of the day was the, the best. So I, I think I have to agree with you. But let's talk about, for a second, internal governance. And so you have all these offices that work together, and you, you mentioned or alluded to a steering committee. Like, what was the internal governance at the SEC to make sure that it was being implemented properly? Yeah, the purpose of the governance body, to, to me, was twofold. One, I think as I was getting at before, we came to the view that this was an opportunity to cause divisions and offices to work more collaboratively. And I think so part of it was really peripheral, if you will. I mean, the governance was important, but I think causing divisions and offices to have to work together around a common IT system and information that each of them had an interest in had the collateral benefit of forcing, if you will, collaboration on important issues. And I, I don't know about your view, Scott. My view is it was very successful because we had people meeting regularly about the system, but it caused conversations that ended up being broader about ways in which divisions and offices can work together um, towards the common interest of protecting investors, which is, of course, an important mission of the agency. I think the direct answer to your question is that the governance was intended to make sure that with a system like this, that by some was viewed as potentially powerful, for lack of a better way to put it, if, if it was given to one division or office, I think it speaks perhaps to the competitive nature of the way people approached this preceding the Madoff era. People were concerned that the enforcement division, for example, could decide how to use this information without the input of other interested divisions. And so the governance body was intended to make sure that nobody had the sole power or interest or role of deciding what information was collected, what, how the information was actioned, and that there was a forum in which these discussions could occur before changes to the system that could impact other divisions and offices could be made. So you were the, you were the chair of this governance body for many years. I think it was called the TCR Oversight Board. And can you just give a flavor without divulging inside information, like was a type of issue that would come up to the board 
like who were the actual board members, who were the representatives at the agency, and like how did those discussions take place? It started very senior in 2009 when we were designing the system because that it was an important initiative by the chairman, as probably with all government agencies. Um, I think people pay attention to the chairman. And so we actually started with, believe it or not, division directors and deputy directors. Obviously, that wasn't a sustainable approach. And as the governance body evolved, my observation is that it ended up involving managing executives of these divisions, the COOs of the divisions, or the significant consumer of this kind of information, depending on the division and office. It was a pretty senior group, though, for the most part. And that was that was actually delightful from my perspective. I think there was a requirement to be a senior officer. Wasn't that right? That is right. I think that was built into the charter for exactly that reason, because if you had a handful of senior officers and someone didn't care and they sent you know, a line level person, you wouldn't really have decision makers in the room. In terms of the issues, during my tenure as the chair, it really was still during the design phase. And so a lot of the issues that we were resolving was changes to the system or design implementation. And there, there actually were decisions that had to be made that would influence, the, for example, the volume of information that was collected, the decisions around reporting, and the decisions about how things in the system could be changed. It turns out these seemingly smaller technical issues really had uh, a lot of interest. So what do you do? And I'm trying to think back to some of the decisions that were more challenging. And one of them that I recall was, we call them abusers of the system, frequent complainers, or you know, may write in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of TCRs. And you know, that can dull the senses of somebody, oh, oh here's another one, my daily tip. Like what, what did the governance board do in a dealing with those kind of one-off type of things in terms of did they weigh in and give guidance to the, the staff on how to treat those? Like what was the role of the governance board in those special situations? Yeah, this is one of the great things about the advent of the TCR system. I think there's two benefits to this. One is you know, the system itself allowed data in relation to those individuals, right? We now could look at with some precision the volume and nature of those kinds of complaints. More importantly, though, going back to what I said earlier about the impact on the psyche of the average enforcement attorney who may be facing these complaints and doesn't want, maybe maybe this crazy person or seemingly crazy person who's sending all these tips is right. On the other hand, the agency doesn't have the resources if after dozens of these, they've determined that the complaints really are without merit. It provides some institutional protection for people who make the intelligent decision not to devote resources that the agency doesn't have to people who are not providing quality tips, but rather seem to be wasting the agency's time. So the governance board um, allowed the agency and the Division of Enforcement to make decisions about things that really shouldn't rest institutionally with a single person, given the institutional risk of choosing, for example, to ignore a complainant or a group of complaints. So would it be safe to say then that all the other divisions and offices that participate in the governance would own the decision, for example, that an examinations group or enforcement made in terms of how they dispositioned allegations because they had brought it to the board and uh, discussed it, received counsel and maybe some directive on how to do it, spread the kind of liability? 
That's right. I, I don't want to leave an impression that this group of senior people from across the agency spent too much time and energy discharging, you know, I think the primary enforcement responsibility, which is actioning tips and complaints. But in it was it's really in the significant or rare instances where you have where you want to make a, a decision that's inconsistent with the policy, right? Which is not to review particular tips and complaints consistent with the policy. It's really when you're trying to go outside of a policy or an exception to a policy, that's when you'd come to this group. And yes, the decision is therefore owned by by the group and, and the agency as a whole. So let me ask you one more question on governance before we move on. And this has to do with uh, the Office of the Inspector General. You and I got to spend a fair number of hours in those special second floor conference rooms with the OIG on the TCR system. Can you describe, and you talked about the OIG earlier, can you describe what the OIG does and what their role was in uh, monitoring what the SEC was doing with the TCR system post-Madoff? Yes. There's a couple of, of ways that the Inspector General was involved, one of which is that the OIG is one of the offices that was a recipient of tips. So going back to my early investigation, a tip, by the way, could go to the Inspector General whose mission is to root out fraud, waste, and abuse at the agency, their mission is not to investigate securities fraud. And so the, the role of the inspector general is an internal governance role. It's an internal investigative role. They receive complaints, as I said before, related to fraud, waste, or abuse at the agency. And they're tasked with investigating complaints that come in about employees or the agency as a whole that may violate the agency's policies or procedures or, or broader laws. They also have an audit function, kind of like internal audit at a company, where they do audits of different agency programs. So as it relates to the TCR system, there's really, I think there's three important things. Number one, they're a user of the system. The Office of the Inspector General, because they receive complaints, had to have a role in, in an, and an ability to use or access the system. Number two, one of their recommendations, which of course followed the agency's actions in the first instance already, but one of their post-Madoff recommendations was to improve the system on tips and complaints, and the agency accepted that recommendation. And so they had an oversight role in ensuring that the agency effectively closed out that audit item that management had accepted. So they were sort of keeping an eye on it to make sure that they could comfortably say that the agency fulfilled that obligation. And I think lastly, in their audit role, they early on identified as an important audit objective, this tips and complaint system. And so there was regular interaction with them as, as an auditor in ensuring that this system actually uh, was put together uh, and managed with proper government governance. Yeah, so the, if I recall correctly, you know, in 2011, we thought we were going to build a system in two years, it would be done. And we're both now gone from the agency, but I think we both left as the system was still being developed. And it was almost like a continuous development. How do you know when this, when a system like this is done? Is it always going to be in development? You know, how do you say you've accomplished your task? Well, in the first instance, we quickly came to appreciate that this was going to be a long-term project. We didn't have the funding to do it as quickly as we would like. And we realized that it was a more ambitious project than we originally thought. So I think success was defined by getting a system up and running, 
and putting an infrastructure in place that will allow for continued expansion and improvement. So from my perspective, um, I don't remember precisely how long it took, but we did stand up a tip and complaint system that achieved what we had redefined as the most important early objectives, which was to allow external parties and internal parties to input tips and complaints for there to be a workflow to action the tips and complaints and for there to be some amount of reporting, auditable reporting out of the system. We, we were successful in doing that. And I think despite some early hiccups that are typical for IT projects, it was a substantial improvement over the system as it existed before. I think success is fairly declared, but there is no question that there was an awful lot of work to achieve, I think, the, the full goals of the system when, when you and I stopped working on it. Uh, let's shift gears for a second. And in, in preparing for our discussion with you and talking to our student producer groups, uh, they asked me a question that I couldn't really give a good answer to. So I'm going to let Nathan ask you that question and you can give him a good answer. So Dodd-Frank included a whistleblower provision. Uh, how did this change the TCR process? And maybe before that, if you want to touch on what is the difference between a TCR and a whistleblower complaint? Sure. I'll start with the second question first, and then we can go to the, the first question. So one of my other projects for Chairman Shapiro arising out of, you know, Madoff and other things as part of the post-Madoff commitment was to create a formal whistleblower program. So the agency coordinated with Congress in the Dodd-Frank process for the creation of formal whistleblower program that allows for rewards to whistleblowers for successful enforcement actions that arise out of a whistleblower tip that is defined in the statute and ultimately rules that the agency put in place in 2011. So now the agency has an office of the whistleblower and formal whistleblower submissions are made. They're not different theoretically in the sense that any tip can qualify as a whistleblower complaint. There's some formal structure around it. And the formal structure could influence whether somebody qualifies for an award. The difference really is, I think, more bureaucratic than actual in the sense that a whistleblower tip can be three sentences or it can be a 50-page submission. It's just whether or not you're, somebody is seeking to qualify for an award. The agency gets perhaps 20,000 tips a year and maybe 10,000 whistleblower tips a year. And while I think the consensus is that the whistleblower tips, some of them, I should say, tend to include higher quality and more fulsome submissions, non-whistleblower tips can be equally successful and certainly are an important source of information for the agency. But it's really the formal process that's the difference. Are the money incentives, do you think that's that corresponds to increase usefulness of the tips? Does that improve the quality because of the money incentives? I mean, that was the idea. Correct. There's two elements on the theory behind what was being accomplished. The primary one is money, right? By offering people an incentive to come forward with their concerns for obvious reasons, they're more willing to do it. Some of those reasons, as whistleblower theorists would tell you, includes that you're putting your professional career in jeopardy, and that money mitigates the risk that you may lose your job or be unable to work. And we certainly have seen that. The other, though, as an important one is actually whistleblower protections. 
Dodd-Frank put in place whistleblower protections so that whistleblowers can't be retaliated against. And I think that is also relevant in encouraging whistleblowers to come forward. But the numbers are big. The program is almost at a billion dollars since its inception. If you think about it, that is, that's profound. From a practical perspective, if you have a complaint, you know there's fraud, you want to tell the SEC about it, you go to the SEC's website and you log into the complaint system, the TCR system, at some point there's a button that says or asks you to declare yourself as a whistleblower. Is that an important fork? Like if you give a complaint that unveils a fraud and you didn't click that button, is that the determinant of whether or not you can get a financial reward? Like how important is that button? Well, it's an important button, but the agency's rules provide safeguards so that people who are uh, well-meaning whistleblowers don't miss out on the opportunity because they didn't fully appreciate the regulatory framework. This goes back to your point earlier in our discussion, Scott, that everybody coming to the system isn't a securities lawyer, right? And so the rules do allow people who provide what, it, what the rules refer to as original information to the agency that leads to, a, to, to an enforcement action, other opportunities to claim that award, even if they didn't click the right button. So um, I, I think that's a nice feature of the program uh, so that people don't miss out because of a technical mistake. And you mentioned that some of the submissions came in could be as long as 50 pages. Is that because these whistleblowers are getting help in some way? And why are they so long and not just the text box putting in a few sentences? A absolutely. And I think that's one of the most significant features about the award program is, it is, is that it incentivized lawyers to assist whistleblowers in putting together submissions. The point of the program was to make the agency's job easier, right? The agency has limited resources and a lot of allegations of wrongdoing. The program is intended to have people who have useful information come forward so the agency can stop fraud faster. And the addition of these lawyers in helping them is to spend time packaging together, right, facts and documents and information from their clients in a more digestible way to save the agency resources. And in, I guess I, in my experience, in many instances, that is completely successful. In other words, sometimes these lawyers help whistleblowers come forward, and sometimes they present to the agency, in a sense, a case in a box, right? But I, I, I think it's important to point out that's not always the case. Some of these substantially packaged tips come from people who are wrong, and the agency certainly, certainly deploys resources following up on whistleblower tips that are not violations of federal securities laws, but on balance, some of the best of these really do stop or prevent substantial frauds. Is it fair to say that this is like the first triage if a, if a whistleblower, if a firm that specializes in whistleblower complaints decides to take it on and help the whistleblower, then when it comes in, you've got 50 pages, you already know it's a signal that it's probably going to be high quality because why else would this firm have you know, taken on that responsibility or that role? I would say I 80% I agree. Yes, I think if you have a 50-page submission or a 25-page submission, you're definitely going to get someone's attention. And it's not likely that a line person in the Office of Market Intelligence is going to just recommend no action on that. That's probably going to find its way to an enforcement lawyer. Having said that, right, many of the lawyers who do this don't themselves fully understand 
the implications of their whistleblowers' allegations. And they don't, while they may try, you're right, they have a financial incentive only to waste or spend the time and energy if they think it's it's going to be successful because they earn zero if it's not successful. That's actually a very useful um, alignment of interest. On the other hand, it also creates advocacy, right? And so it, it creates the opportunity for people to package information in a way that makes it most likely to appear as a securities law violation. And, you know, sometimes it's not. So we're, we're coming up to the end of our time with you. Uh, we really appreciate it. We have a couple of ending questions. I know you probably have to get to a deposition or something very important, but Nathan, do you want to close us out? Absolutely. So we started off talking about the Madoff scandal and then about kind of the TCR system. Has any other fraud or case been as impactful since Madoff happened? What's second place and how has that interacted with the TCR system? Nothing has been as impactful, in my view, on the agency as the Madoff fraud. I, th- I think I mentioned Stanford in the immediate aftermath, which had a profound impact but was overshadowed by Madoff. But I can't think of any other fraud since Madoff that has had remotely the impact that Madoff had. There are many, many concrete regulatory and administrative actions the agency took in the aftermath of Madoff. And I can't think of anything similar. If you look at Enron and WorldCom, right, those are the comparable public company frauds. They preceded Madoff. They led to the creation of the PCAOB and they led to Sarbanes-Oxley, right? Madoff led to all of these changes. I, not that frank, that's the financial crisis, but the whistleblower program, the TCR system, the custody rule and so many other rules and, and issues of the agency it really hasn't been, I don't think, anything since then. So last question. If the TCR system had been in place earlier, would it have led to the earlier capture of Madoff or detection of the fraud? This is one of the, the ironies, Scott, about this issue that I just need to confess directly and honestly. I, I think the answer is no. I don't think that the agency's ability to detect Madoff was inhibited inhibited necessarily because there was no tips and complaint system. I think it atmospherically, right, the fact that the agency did not follow up on certain tips and complaints as thoroughly as it could have, I think has contributed to the perspective that if only there was a better system, it could have been avoided. With the caveat that I do think if there was one thing about the tips and complaint system today that I think could have been relevant to the Madoff fraud is the fact that today, when you go in and put a tip in, you immediately see other tips and complaints about that particular actor. So there were tips and complaints about Madoff going back to 1992 through 2005, and they were often years apart. There, so when someone 2001 or 2005 got a complaint about Madoff, they wouldn't know that the agency received a complaint years earlier. I do believe if in 2000 or 2005, some of those same complaints were viewed against the backdrop of the prior complaints, that is one way in which the tips and complaint system might have actually caused people to think differently about Madoff and the tips and complaints, and therefore could have resulted in a different investigation that could have stopped the fraud. Wow, great answer. Steve, thanks for your time today. 
My pleasure. I really appreciate you having me. I hope you enjoyed the start of season two with this episode, which I've long looked forward to producing. Compared to the attention the Madoff scandal initially received and the renewed attention in the fraud with its recent passing, relatively little has been said about how the SEC responded to address the core criticisms, which took years to put in place and was still ongoing when I left the agency in 2018. It took so long because it required a cultural change. And there was a cultural change. Steve talked about it. A TCR oversight board was created to govern the process of building the system, but not only that, it governed the implementation of it across the agency. And whether by design or luck, I don't really know which, it turned out to be a forum for lengthy and substantive discussions at the senior executive level on important issues that have endured year over year. In many ways, it served as internal therapy for staff to share their views on really important issues and decisions that needed to be made and arrive at substantive decisions. In busy organizations, it's rare for senior leaders to systematically meet like this. But the value of that was recognized at the SEC and the TCR board and its charter. It served as a model to tackle other important initiatives and other important problems, at least during my tenure. Thanks for joining us in this episode, and please stay tuned for new installments each week. We have a great lineup of speakers scheduled, and the student producers are busy getting prepared. We hope you return for the listen, and please don't be shy and letting others know about us if you like what you're hearing. Today's episode is a production of the Salem Center for Policy, housed in the McComb School of Business at the University of Texas at Austin. Our series is part of the UT Podcast Network. The opinions expressed represent the views of the hosts and the guests, and not the University of Texas at Austin. Today's student executive producers are Abby Sawyer and Zoe Tarr of the Moody School of Communication. Mm-hmm.